Well, good evening. We are so glad to have you here at The Mind. Thanks for coming. Uh, this may be your first time here. You may have heard of the discussion that's about to take place, and so you thought that you would come with a neighbor, a friend, or maybe even by yourself. And if, that, if that's the case, if this is your first time, let me just highlight a few things about uh, the next hour or so. Uh, we've got a couple of microphones here, and the way we work the mind every Tuesday night is we consider this kind of just a large group Bible study. And if you have a question or a comment or a thought, if you agree or disagree, just raise your hand, and one of these beautiful men here on the sides will come, and they will throw a mic your way. Uh, because of the crowd and the size tonight, uh, as last week, I'm just going to ask a couple of house rules uh, that you would... Um, partake in, and that would be, uh, if you could keep your questions as brief as possible and not layer the questions and have five-point questions, but rather, uh, that way we can get as many in as possible. Um, last week, we went till about 8.45, and that, was, um, and that was great. We had a fruitful discussion on Mormonism, uh, but we have volunteers that are graciously running sound and lights and, and production and, and kids, and they need to get home too, and so we want to get as many questions in as possible. And so after some brief introductory comments, um, just raise your hand and one of these gentlemen will get to you, okay? So you can be formulating your questions right now. Uh, four weeks ago, we started this series on religious IQ. We talked about Jesus the first week. We talked about the Bible or the Bible and then Jesus. We ventured into atheism with Dr. J.P. Moreland. Uh, we have Jeff Durbin here uh, last week talking about Mormonism. And then last Sunday, if you were privileged as I was to come on Sunday, you heard from Mr. Al-Fadi that, uh, that there is significant similarities and yet significant differences between Christianity and Islam. And he's here tonight to help us understand that just a little bit further. He is the author of The Quran Dilemma, and it is available in the back if you'd like to pick up a copy, as many of us did on Sunday. And so that's available for us as well. Okay? So would you welcome with me, please, Mr. Al-Fadi. Thank you. If you have a question at this point in time, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll just jump right in as you're thinking about that, and uh, I see some hands already going up. Um, we will do Islam this week. Uh, next week, we have Catholicism, uh, and that will wrap up our Religious IQ series, and then we'll be back into the book of James for the remainder of the semester right here on Tuesday nights. Ali, thank you very much for the Quran Dilemma. That is a beautiful work. It's very scholarly. It's well-built. It is really a good resource. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, Thank you. We're looking forward to volume two, by the way. Um, Coming soon to a neighborhood near you. Good. <laughs> Let us know. A um, couple questions. I'm not going to pile them up too high. Um, Muhammad dates the, or the Arabic year one is 622 which was Muhammad in Mecca, or in, in, in Mecca. Okay, now, you state, you state in the book that there is very little written history to corroborate around that. Yet, from other sources, um, there are, the history goes back to 3000 BC in, in the ancient languages, and all of those things have been studied. So, why did it take, or, and the other thing, part of this is, what was the pre-Islamic period before uh, Muhammad started his prophecies? What was their religion? Okay. And is it, is it part of the root? 
Uh, very good. Uh, good questions. Uh, by the way, I encourage the people in the back to ask questions because I like to see the young men running all the way to the back. <laughs> but anyway, I'm not a troublemaker, by the way. Um, the question has uh, a two-part question. One has to do with the uh, dating, right? And, and you're sitting in year 622, and you're wondering why there isn't much history about Islam written. In fact, um, uh, I, I think this question is excellent because the earliest biography we have about Muhammad and his life dates about 150 years after his death. Now, think about this for a second here. You have 150 years that is missing about the life of one that is considered to be the most prominent prophet in history. According to Islam, he's the most important man in all mankind, basically, to all mankind, basically. So, what does this tell us? This tells us that there has been some later development and enhancements to his own biography. And indeed, we have three major biographies that we know of. If you compare and contrast these biographies next to each other, you're going to see some pieces that are missing from some and some enhancements in the other. All of those date between 150 to 250 years after the life of the Prophet. And, and now, I'll give the dates just for people that... Of course, um, Muhammad, Muhammad basically was born in 570 A.D., became, at least announced himself to be a prophet in 610 A.D., immigrated to another city called Medina around uh, 622 A.D., and died around 632 A.D. And I say around because we don't have anything to confirm these dates other than Islamic own history. So we have to consider that to be the most reliable source we have so far. And then add from 632 another 150 years before you start getting a real biography about his life. In fact, like I said, 150 to almost 250 years later, his own sayings and traditions and teachings known as the Hadith, also the earliest collected Hadith about 180 uh, years after his life, and then from there, there's other collections that could date anywhere from uh, 250 to 350 years after his death, basically. Now, why are these significant? You know, one of the chief arguments that a Muslim person raises against the Gospels is that they were written after Christ was ascended. You know that the earliest, basically, Gospel, according to manuscript evidence and discoveries, can be dated about 20 to 30 years after the ascension of Christ. Now, you think about it. 30 years or 150 years? Hmm. Very tough question, right? I think I would go with the 30 years over the 150. Because if I'm relying on 150 that was mainly dependent on man's memory, then we do have a problem. Because the Gospels were based on a lot of eyewitness accounts. The book of Luke or the Gospel of Luke stated it very clearly that there were a lot of eyewitness accounts and a lot of writings that can help us understand the work and life of Christ. And I want to add one more thing and before I address the second part, and I apologize, I don't want to be taking too much time answering, but I want to make, it, uh, make sure it's educational as well. Uh, another thing about the Gospels, by the way, if you go to First and Second Corinthians, Paul was talking to the church in Corinth and wrote to them before even the earliest Gospels were ever written. And he was talking to them about the church service, by the way. In chapter 11, for instance, and 12, he talks about the communion. And he talks about baptism and other things, which tells us that the church was already adapting these 
biblical principles and teachings and commandments from Christ even before the Gospels were written. So those are significant, by the way, uh, when it comes to studying the history of the church and the history of what the church also had to adhere to in terms of the commands of Christ. Now, the second uh, part of your question, uh, you're going to have to remind me what it was. What was the pre what was the pre the pre Islamic the pre Islamic period pre Islamic history also is very crucial by the way for a number of reasons Islam built upon what was in existence before it started it if you want to know what was the view of Islam on Christianity and its own understanding on Christianity you will discover pretty soon in studying the Quran that the Quran was reporting heretical form of Christianity. Islam, for instance, thought that Christianity worshipped three gods. Islam also taught that Christ was actually created. That was a heresy that was in existence, by the way, and many people were excommunicated as a result of this. Islam taught the separation between the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. Yet, when it comes to the divine nature of Christ, it never believes that Christ himself is God. It believed that he was empowered by God when he was doing supernatural things. That was a heresy, by the way, in the church. Islam does not believe in the original sin. That's also a heresy that took place at least in the 3rd and 4th century. If you have studied church history, you'll know that St. Augustine's have uh, some debates with a man known Pelagians. And Pelagian never believed in the original sin. He believes that a human being is created sinless and then gets corrupted as a result of the culture and the environment around him. Now, that's amazing because according to Pelagian, if I want to take him seriously, no man in the history of mankind ever lived sinless. So you wonder, why do we always have to sin except for Christ? Islam believes the same way. It will tell you that a baby is born sinless, but it gets corrupted later. Yet it claims emphatically that the only person that was born sinless and lived sinless and died sinless, I mean ascended uh, to heaven sinless, was our Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing that Islam built upon was some of the Apocrypha teachings and stories uh, that were reported in the Apocrypha books. So what, whether it's uh, Jewish books or uh, Christian books. For instance, the Quran teaches that Jesus used to create from mud birds and images of birds and breathe life into them. We do not find this in the, Bi in the gospel or our Bible, basically. Where did Islam come up with this story? Well, there is something called the gospel of Thomas. That's where Islam got the story from. The Quran teaches that Jesus spoke right after his birth as a baby, basically, in the manger, basically. He spoke and was defending his mother and her integrity and her reputation. Where did Muhammad and the Quran get this idea from? We have some Gospels known as the Gospels of Infancy or the Gospel of Arabia. So that's where Islam borrowed this idea from. Jewish teachings and uh, teachings like the Midrash, the Talmud, and other books, Muhammad borrowed from them some of the uh, uh, dietary uh, rules, uh, some of the rituals. Uh, in fact, it borrowed some even stories that are not reported in the Bible regarding uh, Abraham, for instance, and regarding Moses and a couple of other events as well. So I don't want to get into a lot of details, but one significant thing that Islam also got from the pre-Islamic history is the name Allah. Many people think that the name Allah is exclusive for the Quran and Islam, meaning that Islam came to declare to us a God known as Allah. 
Yet the name Allah existed before the start of Islam, meaning it was one of the major or chief idols that were worshipped by pagans. So Islam basically came to ask its followers to worship a god that was already a pagan god to begin with. Hopefully this clarified you know, some of that. You're welcome. Questions? Oh, yeah. Right down the middle here. Um, and while they're getting to her, uh, to her Al, um, regarding Muhammad then, um, clarify for us then, he didn't have his vision until later in his life. He was a father of several children. His wife was several years older than he was. Um, it, it's, it's misnomer, I guess, to believe that he lived the life, let's say that Jesus lived, um, a sinless life up until his vision. But rather, he, he really lived the life of a normal, um, normal person. That's correct. Until he had his vision. That's correct. And uh, with Pastor Greg saying here, Muhammad basically uh, known, at least according to Islamic history and traditions, that he was a, uh, a, a trades manager or a business manager for a wealthy lady by name Khadija. He was 25, she was 40, and she ended up marrying him. And he lived with her until he was 40 years of age before he declared himself to be a prophet. So for 15 years at least, uh, living with this wife, uh, he was living a normal life. Even before that, before he met her, he was living a pagan life. We know that from Islam's own history that right. Muhammad claimed at some point that he went and offered sacrifices for an idol. I mean, when you, when you do stuff like that, that tells me that you weren't living a uh, righteous life per se. Uh, you were not guided by God from day one. Uh, Islam also believes that Muhammad is sinless, but you read the Quran, the Quran declared that God basically forgave his previous and future sins. Now, there is a difference between living sinless all of your life and God forgiving your sins, and now you're declaring yourself sinless. And in fact, why do, we, uh, why do we get mocked when we say our sins are forgiven when we believed in Christ? How come it's okay for Muhammad to be forgiven all of his sins and declare to be sinless, yet we cannot do something like this? So that's a good point. The Quran as well was, was words from the prophet to people that wrote them down. It's actually... He could, he could not... That's correct. Read he couldn't or read or write. Okay. The claim that Muhammad was illiterate... Uh, if you go to the Quran chapter, uh, which I don't want you to go to the Quran, but if you go to the Quran in chapter 7, verse 156 in the Quran, it talks about Muhammad, the illiterate prophet, who is supposedly mentioned in the Bible. In other words, Muhammad was arguing with the people of the book, the Christians and the Jews, that he was prophesied in their own Bible, and one of the key signs about himself was that he was an illiterate prophet, and they should know better if they're studying their Bible that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, I'll give you a prophecy that comes so close to at least agreeing with what he says, but it's taken out of context. Isaiah 29, 12 talks about this. It says, if you give the scroll to someone and ask him to read, he will say, I do not know what to read. Or I do not know how to read, depending on a translation. A Muslim will say, look, this is a prophecy that was fulfilled in the life of Muhammad. Why? Because at age 40, Muhammad was in a cave, and he claimed that an angel appeared to him and squeezed him so tightly and was saying, read. And Muhammad will say, I do not know what to read. And he repeated it three times. 
So that was supposedly the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah. Which, by the way, Isaiah wasn't a prophecy. It was a declaration by God about the status of the heart uh, of his people. And God was preparing him to be punished by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. So there is a difference now between a punishment that is impending upon the people of God and a prophecy supposedly about a coming prophet. Another thing that you mentioned also, where did the Quran come from? Well, Muslims believe that the Quran came straight from heaven. God recited the Quran to Gabriel. Gabriel will recite it back to Muhammad. Muhammad will memorize it. He will recite it back to a scribe or his scribes, and they will write it down. And sometimes they will retain it in memory. In our book, we get into a lot of details about how the Quran was collected. But a rule of thumb, the Quran was never collected as a book until after the death of Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And Arabic would be the true language? The only the language, yes. That they so, would. Yes, exactly. Supposedly, uh, Arabic is the language of the heaven. So you better learn it, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> I'm going to heaven. I know Arabic. Uh, I think... I have... Okay, one here and then one here in the middle. Okay. Uh, I mentioned to you Sunday, I spent the last two weeks in Riyadh. That's uh, with the With the Saudi military. And I had the start of a friendship with four uh, officers, two in the Navy and two in the Army. Uh, I will be rekindling those relationships when they come over here and I will be going back. My question is, how do I start to witness to those very intelligent people, obviously Islamic, very dedicated? Uh, I have no idea how to start. Well, brother, you know, of course, you don't need to know anything about Islam to witness to them. Um, you need to, of course, um, as a godly man, and I can tell you are, uh, your life should be a testimony to them. I always encourage people to be inquisitive. Ask questions. How is salvation in Islam? And talk about that. Uh, who is Jesus in Islam? And talk about that. Try to always plant seeds, uh, fill in any gaps, and help them see and hear for themselves, and hopefully, and pray, of course, and ask others to pray, to the point that they are maybe hungry to get a copy of the Bible, for instance. Maybe they want to read for themselves. Uh, trust me, sometimes those intelligent religious people are the ones that will surprise you and ask for a copy of the Bible and be willing to have a dialogue than the ones that don't know anything about their own teaching. So that's what I encourage you to do. Prayer is very important. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and we'll go to the middle and then the back, actually. I have to ask the question of, um, and I know you have a good sense of humor being here in America, but the thing with the what you get in the end when you die besides the seven virgins, where what that do, came in. What do you get? What, when you die, uh -huh. what, what, besides these virgins that okay. I hear about, what do your... What does your God offer you that okay. makes the religion grow so much? Very good question. Uh, let me talk about the doctrine of death in Islam. Islam teaches that a, a person lives three lives. You live a life on earth after your birth until your death. Then there is an intermediate life in the grave. And then there is the final eternal life in heaven or in hell. The life in the grave, usually, it's a representation of what your life in eternity would be like. Yet still, there is no assurance. When someone dies, it is believed that two angels are going to appear to him and ask him a set of questions. And based on the answer he's going to receive, he might be punished or might be rewarded and will be showed through a window 
into heaven and be told this could be your place in heaven if you make it to heaven. And another window that will look into hell and will be told this could be your place and your final abode in hell if you go that far. Now, if a person didn't die as a martyr, then he will be judged according to his deeds. Good deeds, bad deeds will be weighed on a scale. If the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, that doesn't mean that you are automatically into heaven. It is still up to God to decide that you will go to hell or you will go to heaven. It could be, according to Islamic teachings and Muhammad's own teaching, it could be that a person would live all of his life as a righteous Muslim and will do one bad deed that will be displeasing to God. And because of that one bad deed, God can send that person to hell, whether for a temporary period or for eternity. So there is no assurances. You need the mercy of God, basically. So salvation in Islam and grace and, and mercy don't happen until after you die and you are on judgment day and face with God. It's not like you get it right now. There is no assurance right now here on earth. If you make it to heaven, it is taught that there are different levels of heaven. If you're a martyr, that's the only time you're guaranteed the highest level of heaven. There'll be no judgment your bad deeds will be wiped out completely. Only your good deeds will count. And you will receive the supposed 70 virgins. And you will receive also mansions and rivers of gold and many other things, basically. That's the claim. Uh, Quran is filled with those stories. Now, someone, remember, brother, you asked about the influence of pre-Islamic history. Islam and the Quran borrowed those kind of images of the uh, heaven uh, from Persian teachings and writings. Those existed in the Zoroastrian religion, basically. They would have writings about uh, how heaven would look like. In fact, those same Zoroastrian uh, religion teachings, which is the Persian, all Persia, basically, talked about virgins in heaven. The word used is whore. Now, there is some, someone who might argue that the word whore is an Assyrian word that means graves. So it's a grave, basically. It's not a... And a wide-eyed, open-eyed, uh, you know, virgin. So, in other words, those people could be bombing and killing themselves for uh, uh, basically some grapes, a vineyard or something like that. I mean, that's a surprise, really, if they ended up there and found out that it's only a vineyard. <laughs> so, no one really knows for sure. In fact, the tradition that they are going to receive 70 virgins is a weak hadith. So, it's not even supported. It's just uh, someone who came up with this, and they claim Muhammad said it. There are no enough evidence to support that this hadith was authentic. So hopefully that answered that question. I know we have someone in the back. My, my question was pretty much the same thing, but I heard your answer was pretty much like, this is what he's going to get. But you never hear much about what women and children, what right. they're going to get. So I guess my question would be, would be the other part of that is, uh, since women are really supposed to be, I guess the word would be submiss submissive and to be kind of lower than a man, what, uh, what's in it for them or how do they, what do they believe? Okay, um, I'm going to share certain things about the teaching of Islam and uh, about women, I should say. First of all, if you're a female, I hope I'm not going to offend you by what I'm going to say. Second of all, if there is a female Muslim in here, I really hope and pray, I pray that you are listening very carefully to what I'm saying and go and investigate it for yourself because I'm not making up stories here. It's all coming from Islamic traditions. The idea that a woman in Islam is equal to man is nothing but a laughable idea. 
simply because the Quran is very clear when it comes to where women uh, stand and where uh, do they uh, basically their status in relationship to a man. I'll give you an example. In chapter 4 of the Quran, known as the chapter of women, that's its title. Chapter 4, verse 34, starts by saying, Women are less degree than men because the man is the provider for the household. So that's the classification. Because the man is the provider for the household, apparently the woman now becomes less, uh, basically less degree than the man. You have to understand, Muhammad said this 14 centuries ago, according to his own environment and his own understanding of his own culture. So he looked at his culture and assumed that his culture is representative of God's family and how God created man and woman. This goes, by the way, completely against the biblical teaching. Because in the Bible, in Genesis 2, verses 24 to 27, it says very clearly that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. In fact, the word one in the Hebrew is ahad. Two combined together become one. It has a significance in terms of the Trinity, by the way. But where is this word was used, ahad? Because it's important in the Bible to do a word study and find out where is this word used and the context of its usage to know the, uh, understand the meaning. You go to Deuteronomy 6.4, known as the Shema, which is the hearing of Israel, the decree, basically, and declaration of Israel to God. What it, you remember what it says? Hear, O Israel, your Lord God is one. Is one. The word ahad is used of God also. So God says in the Bible, he's going to look at a husband and wife both together as one person. Yet in Islam, the woman is less already. Second of all, the husband in that verse have the right to beat his wife. In English translation, I kind of shuckle over this. It says beat her lightly. My question is why beat her at all? Doesn't matter beat her lightly or not. In another verse, of course, it talks about the wife. I mean, the husband has the right to marry up to four wives. So now you have the husband and four wives. These are not one. You can't put four wives and one husband and the four and the one become a one in the eye of God. There is no way you have a husband and two wives and he can still treat both of them the same. So these are just some examples of how Islam teaches about women. Now, when it comes to heaven... Well, we're told that a woman will receive the same thing like a man will receive, with the exception to the 70 virgin men. She's not going to receive anything like this. <laughs> now, another thing. Muhammad says, in a vision, supposedly he ascended to heaven and met with God, and God showed him heaven and hell, and he came back and reported that the majority of inhabitants in hell are female. Boy, that's really comforting, if you know. And then he blamed the fall and the sinful nature of man on Eve and her female descendants. That's what Islam teaches. So, I guess I have no other answers other than this. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just I want to apologize as the mic runner. I'm going to ask a question here. Is um, he allowed to ask a question? Am I allowed to ask a question? Well, I'm going to do it anyway. You, you touched on the Trinity, and I understand that the, the concept of Trinity... And Christianity is a stumbling block to many um, Muslims. Could you elaborate? I mean, it's a stumbling and difficulty for 
um, some non-believers of Christianity too. Can you explain specifically why the Trinity is such a stumbling block for the Muslim people? Sure. Um, you know, brother, can I answer it and, and ask for a couple of examples? Sure. And because you're here, maybe you can read those examples from sure. the Bible. Okay. Uh, one of the most stumbling blocks to a Muslim person indeed is the Trinity. They believe we worship three gods. Literally, that's what they think. In fact, the Quran erroneously reported in chapter 7 that those three gods that we worship are God the Father, God the Mother, supposedly Mary, and God the Son. So even the order is wrong. But even if we were to try to still claim that we worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to them is the angel Gabriel. So they're confused about that. But they cannot really fathom the idea that there is God who is one, yet this God declared himself in the Bible very clearly as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does that work? I don't know. Because if I can figure it out, I will be God by now. <laughs> but I have to trust the Word of God. God chose to declare to me enough information about His person and His nature to the point that I am able at least to comprehend what His message is. And Jesus declared it very clearly in His great commission and baptizing Him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the first emphatic statement about who God is. Okay, now a Muslim person have a struggle with the fact that God is in heaven but God is on earth at the same time. They believe God cannot humble himself and come down to earth. They believe God cannot be on the cross because if God is on the cross and dies, who's running the universe? Now this is really shallow understanding, by the way, of the nature of God. God is an all-powerful God who can do all things at all times. If Jesus' body died, that doesn't mean God is dead. In fact, the argument goes like this. The Quran reported that God appeared to Moses in the bush. That's the Quran. Well, if God appeared to, the Mo to Moses in the bush, who was running the universe at that time? <laughs> you see? I mean, you have to really use the same argument here. Now, I have another thing. I've been using this a lot lately, and it's a very stumbling block to a Muslim person because they don't have any answer for it. A Muslim person, according to the Quran, believes that Quran is the Word of God. Majority Muslim scholars and theologians do not dare to say the Quran is created. They say the Quran is the eternal Word of God. In other words, it's existed for whole eternity. The Quran says that it is existed for whole eternity in what is known as the preserved tablets in heaven. Think about this for a second. I am God sitting on a throne and there is a tablet. In fact, there is a tablet right here next to me right now. It's called an iPad. So here is I am and you have a tablet that have my words that is inseparable. Okay, this is my word and inseparable. But that doesn't make me two distinct persons right now. God and the tablet that have my word. Right? And to top it, my word on the tablet now is down on earth in the pages of the Quran. In other words, it was incarnated in the Quran. So doesn't that make God, Allah, three person now? God, the tablets, and the Quran? And you're telling me my trinity is difficult to understand? <laughs> you see, that's another way sometimes to try to Ignite thinking in the heart and mind of Muslims. I ask this question, by the way, over Facebook all the time. 
Not a single answer so far. Seriously, for three months, not a single answer. Not even one daring to explain it to me. There is no answer for these things. You cannot even answer it. Now, brother, I'm going to show an example about you have to believe in the Word of God. You have to believe in the Bible. And I'm going to show you right now how amazing our God is. Our God is one, by the way. In the beginning, God, Elohim, the I am, is a plural. That's the plural form, uh, form basically, in the Hebrew. God is telling us from get-go, guess what? I'm different. I'm one, but I'm not the one that you're thinking. I am completely different. So can we take a couple of minutes to try to Absolutely. show something? Sure. Very good. I love iPads because they're quick. So you all should get one. But anyway, <laughs> that was my, uh, you know, yeah. commercial thing Absolutely. for iPads. Yeah. So let's go, for instance, to Isaiah chapter 6. And please write down these things if you want. Oh, uh, is it recorded, by the way? Can people get this? Yeah, it's podcast. Okay, so you don't have to write down anything. So if you go to Isaiah 6 uh -huh. and kindly read from verse 1, because I want it to be in context. Sure. From verse, verse 1 until you get to verse 8 and there is a prophecy said there. Sure. But let's read from verse 1. And I apologize, this will take about five minutes, but it's really important to explain. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, starting in 1, in the, year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Let's stop right here. Did you hear what he says? I heard the voice of whom? Of the Lord. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. All right? Capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh. Okay? Very good. And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's the prophecy. So God told Isaiah, go and tell my people this prophecy. Now, who did Isaiah hear? The voice of who? The Lord. The Lord. This is Isaiah chapter 6, starting from verse 8, right? Okay, so now let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 28, the very last chapter in the book of Acts. Now, you all know that Paul was a Pharisee, right? If you don't believe me, go to the book of Ephesians, I mean Philippians chapter 3, and you'll see that he gave you his resume over there. In fact, he said he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. So in order for him to be a Pharisee, that means he studied the Old Testament, he memorized the Psalms, he knew the prophets, he studied all of that. And for him to reach that status, he better know the Bible very well and he knows better that it's a blasphemy to make any claims against God's own word. Now we go to Acts chapter 28, verse 25. Paul was basically sharing the gospel with a group of people. And then it says that some of them were troubled in their heart about what they heard and began to walk away. Look what 
Paul says. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Let me say this. This is the prophecy that we just read. Some of you might say, why is it a little bit different than what we read in Isaiah 6? Very simple answer. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek in what is known as the Septuagint, of course, you have to translate it in a way that will capture the meaning of the Old Testament. What Paul was quoting, or Luke at least was quoting from Paul, was that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Just, uh, just want you to hold your horses, not to jump the gun here, okay? I learned these phrases recently. So, <laughs> nevertheless, so what did Paul say? Did the he Holy say Spirit the Lord? Right. He said the Holy Spirit was right in saying this through the mouth of Isaiah. But remember, Isaiah said he heard the voice of whom? The Lord. The Lord. But here we have that it was the Holy Spirit who was speaking. It gets better. You want to go now to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Gospel of John, chapter 12, and we're going to read from 38 to 41. John 12, 38. And so the, the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory he saw? The glory of Jesus. The same passage in Isaiah represented God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yet the Bible says that God is one. If I do not study the Bible, then I would think that there are three gods in the Bible. But because the Bible says God is one, then now I know God who's one revealed himself in this magnificent way. How? I do not know. You see, brother, sometimes we need to take the time to show them these things. Some might believe, some may not believe. But at the end of the day, we have to do the part that we're inquired to do. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, we'll go here and then one in the back. Going back to Muhammad a little bit. Um, in the uh, verse 1, it sounds like the wording is almost Christian. And it sounds like a Christian prayer in general. And some of what I've read in the Surah 2 sounds like it's Christian. Did he have a Christian influence on him at the time? He did have both a Christian influence and he had also a Jewish influence because some of those people, he came across or encountered them during his travel when he's doing the trade caravans. And uh, later on in life, some of them converted to Islam also and kind of brought some of their own prayers and worships and everything else. Now, believe it or not, that very first chapter you refer to known as the opener, chapter 1 in the Quran, one of Muhammad's most prominent scribes refused to include it in the Quran because he thought it was just a prayer. It wasn't actually a revealed verse or verses from the Quran from, from heaven. He thought it was just a prayer, a hymn. That was one of the reasons why he didn't want to include it. 
that Muslims use this, by the way, every time they pray. They have to start with this chapter first, and then they read and recite from other chapters. Mm-hmm. And as, as, he goes, as it goes on, after he left uh, Mecca, it sounded like Mecca didn't really accept him as a prophet. Correct. But when he went to Medina, mm-hmm. they did. And it really sounds like at that point he changed from the softer tone Right. to a more, uh, shall we say, authoritative tone. Right. Was that because of the politics of the time that he was rising to, or was this yes. a revealed thing? Yes. Muhammad, after serving in Mecca for 13 years, his people refused to accept him. His people were the Arab pagans. That was the dominant residence in that area. Then he moved to Medina, and in Medina, the Arabs were minorities. The majority were Jewish tribes. And the Arabs, of course, needed a leader, and they heard already from the Jewish people that there is a prophet to come, according to Deuteronomy 18.18. So the Arabs thought it could be Muhammad. That's the prophet that they're waiting for. So they brought him. They gave him a, a, made a covenant with him that they are going to support him and follow him. And all of a sudden, Muhammad became now not only a prophet and a religious leader, but now he's a political and a military leader. And in order for him now to become a head of a state, he has to provide for his people. And he started it by raiding caravans of his own people in their way to north or coming south. Why? Because he claimed that because they kicked me out of my town, then I'm justified now to steal from their caravans. And as he was stealing people uh, as slaves, stealing money and products and other things, of course, he became rich. And he would distribute that wealth and uh, uh, those, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, as an award to his own people. And from there, Muhammad began to change his tone. He turned against the Jews when they did not accept him and refused to accept him as a prophet. He began to kick them and annihilate him, basically kick them out and annihilate him uh, in battles and, and killing them. And at the end of the day, whenever Muhammad came up with a command earlier, he changed it and claimed that it was God who was changing those commands. That's what is known in our book, by the way, we title it as abrogation or the doctrine of cancellation. In other words, God will say one thing and later will change that very command. This goes against the nature of our God, by the way. And one final point. Um, when they finally wrote down the Quran, uh, it was in native Arabic. But then it was translated, at least in part or maybe completely, to leave out the diacritical marks and the punctuation. Do you think that was an act of the Holy Spirit? I have no idea. I mean, it it just seems like they committed uh, uh, intellectual suicide or uh, credibility suicide with doing that. Because it really does throw a real question mark over the whole deal. Sure. Now, let me, uh, let me comment a little bit uh, about what uh, the brother is talking about here. Arabic language is a Semitic language. And it's very crucial, in Semitic languages at least, that you have dottings, pointings, and markings to be able to pronounce a word correctly. And as you pronounce it and write it correctly, the meaning of that word would change. So let me say that if I were to use a word without those dots, just with three letters, and change the locations of those dots, I can end up with at least 32 to 33 different meanings. The Quran was written that way and stayed that way for 150 years. And then after that, they invented the markings and the dottings 
which means that the Quran could have been read differently by different people. And in fact, we know the second collection of the Quran was caused by this problem in dialects and meanings. So we do not know if the Quran we have in our hand today was the same authentic Quran that was at the time of Muhammad or even right after Muhammad. Okay. Al, growing up as a, as a faithful Muslim, um, just give us an insight into what was, a, what was the daily life like? Was it, did you follow the five pillars? Did you, was that kind of on the forefront of your activities, five prayers a day, the alms tax, the um, fasting during the Ramadan? Did you make the, I know, I knew you grew up in Saudi Arabia, did you make the, the journey to Mecca? Did you make the Hajj? I mean, yeah. How important is that? Because, because to follow that would seem to be a, a sign of obedience, and yet they're pretty difficult to follow day in and day out. Uh, no doubt about that. A Muslim person is required, or actually declared Muslim automatically, if they would confess that there is no God but Allah and his messenger is Muhammad, and they begin to pray. Why is the prayer? Because it's a public, basically, confession that you're going to the mosque and now you're praying. After that, a Muslim, of course, is required to stick to the other pillars. There is five pillars. The, uh, the, uh, uh, basically, the shahada or the announcement is one. Prayer is two. Fasting during Ramadan is three. Uh, the giving of the alms, which is almost like tithing uh, once, in, uh, once a year at least, or uh, if you want to give it all the time, but at least a certain percentage. Uh, and then there is the fifth one, which is called the pilgrimage or the hajj, and that's once in your lifetime. Not everyone can do this. So that's the only pillar that supposedly God can forgive you for not performing if you couldn't do it because of a good reason, like health reason, or the government uh, prevented you from going. Like you're living, I'm going to use an example, you're living in North Korea, and the government refuses to allow you to leave the country, but you're a Muslim, and you have to perform the pilgrimage, therefore God will forgive you the fact that it has nothing to do with you. So You can, you can send someone on your behalf, though, is that correct? Yes. I'm glad you mentioned that. Believe it or not, you can hire someone on your behalf who will go and perform the pilgrimage. You and that person will still earn good deeds as a result of this. I, I've got a picture, I don't know if they can show it up here, but of the the trip and how close were you to I was 45 minutes away from this place can't see it um, it's dark yeah. that's where I was living <laughs> so that's the Kaaba yeah it's black so um, anyway uh, you basically if you recall seeing uh, the dark cubic shaped you know uh, a building inside of a mosque where people will circulate around that's the Kaaba in Mecca that's what is known the holy mosque in Mecca and people if they pray, of course, not all Muslims, by the way, pray daily. Not all of them are that religious. But when they pray, they have to face that direction. As a religious person, like I was, I was doing these things all the time. Prayer five times a day, facing Mecca. And if I pray at home, it's not as good as praying in a mosque. Praying in a mosque, you earn more degrees for the same prayer. But if you go to the Grand Mosque, you earn what is equivalent to 100,000 times more the regular prayer in home, at home or in the mosque. So that's why it's important to always accumulate deeds in Islam because mm -hmm. you need them. I mean, I think Allah owes me a lot of good deeds. I mean, mm -hmm. I definitely. <laughs> um, so that's basically the life that I live. Now, I, I, as I said, not all Muslims can keep up with this. Some of them will tell you, you know, I'm really not a good Muslim. I know that. 
But in their mind, they still think that they can do one good thing in their life and God will be pleased with them and still send them to heaven. That's unfortunately the hope that they have. Yet Brother Greg had mentioned that you can hire someone to go on your behalf and perform a pilgrimage. When we say Jesus died for our sin and he carried our sins and now we are saved because of his faithfulness, they laugh at us. You tell me, would you hire a sinful person to go and perform a pilgrimage on your behalf and earn good deeds? Or can you trust on the sinless person who is Christ that God declared him to be our righteous sacrifice? So when you were a teenage boy growing up, I, I believe it starts at age 12 or 13 for, for boys to start fasting. Um, sun up to sundown, no food or liquid. Is that, That's right. is that correct? I mean, and for no, the whole month no of water, Ramadan. No water, for instance. No water. And so I, I teach over to, at Valley Christian, and guys, they're not at Valley Christian, but at other high schools, there would be, it's in August or september It depends. It's right a, around it's there. It's an Islamic calendar. Right. And things keep changing around. It's a lunar calendar, okay. basically. Um, there would be kids going to practice, football practice, that couldn't have, if they were faithful, they would, they, you can eat all the way up to sunup, and then you have to abstain from food or drink all the way throughout the day till sundown. Now, be a 16 or 17-year-old kid with volleyball practice or football practice or and so it, it works if if it's if you're not doing anything throughout the day but if you're doing things throughout the day how difficult that would be they do that for 30 days straight every year from the time they're about 13 on in addition to praying five times every day it is it is certainly visibly a religion of works absolutely and uh, if you recall a basketball player, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, for instance, and another uh, one in uh, Houston, Hakeem Olajuwon, uh, Olajuwon. Sure. I mean, they used to play when they're fasting. And uh, it's just a mandatory thing. There is no uh, question that if a person couldn't fast for any reason, that doesn't mean he's home free. After Ramadan is over, they have to make up for that. They add the days on the end. Exactly. Yeah. And during the day that you didn't fast, you still have to feed at least one person or one family. So you still have to do works to cover up for this. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Question over here. Oh, right here, yeah, and then we'll go over there. Here. This is an question. When I was in San Diego, I spoke to the pastor, or whatever he is, of the Muslim church in Claremont. Imam, Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't know what it was. Okay, but anyway, I spoke to him, and I told him that I was a Christian. Uh, we were, I was in his parking lot. I was stuck in it. So anyway, and we were talking, and he said, but we both believe in the same God. Is this correct? Well, that's correct according to Islamic own understanding because the Bible, I mean, the Quran declares that our God and their God is one. In other words, Muhammad came to say Christians and Jews corrupted the character and the attributes and the person of God. And now they're making him father. Uh, Christians even added that Jesus is his son, which means he has to have a physical relationship with someone to have a son. And that's why Islam came to correct all of these misnotions about him. So they believe the God that they worship is the God that we worship. That's not true. Because you have to study what the Quran describes as who God is and the Bible and what the Bible says about our God, put the attributes next to each other, and you'll soon realize there is a problem here. Mm. I'll give you just a quick example, which I mentioned one already. The God of the Bible says he's a God that does not change, and his word, his word will last 
for whole eternity. Okay? Heaven and earth will pass away, and my word will not pass away. That's, that's one uh, example. Yet the Quran, as I said, the God of the Quran will change his commands periodically. Of course, when you study that, you realize it's a human nature to either forget certain things or change it based on events that are taking place and happening. Because if we study the history behind why any verse was revealed, almost 90% of the time, Muhammad has an incident that demanded him to come up with a solution, and therefore that verse was revealed. Then you look at the other attributes of the God of Islam. He would swear, for instance, by his own creation. Yet the God of the Bible says there is no greater name than his own. He will not swear by anything else other than his own name, his own nature. Because if you swear by something else, that means you make that something else to be holier and greater than God himself. Okay. These are just two quick examples about that. If you go to a website called answering-islam.org and type comparison between Allah and the God of the Bible, there is a number of excellent articles written on that. Thank you. You're welcome. We'll go right over here. Where? Right over here to your right. There seems to be just as much infighting in Islam as there is between, with the rest of the world. And that's, uh, I believe, between Shia and Sunni Islam. Can you describe the difference what that's between all about? The two? What the, all that fighting is about. Okay. Um, you hear all the time a Sunni, you hear a Salafi, you hear a Wahhabi, you hear a Shia. What are these? Well, those are different branches of Islam. The two well-known ones are the Sunni and the Shia. Sunni represent about 85% of Islam's worldwide population of 1.5 billion, so about 85% of that. And then another 10% or so are what we know as Shia, and the rest will be what we call Salafi, uh, Wahhabi, uh, Baha'i, and, and many other things like this. Uh, and Sufi, I'm sorry. Uh, so so uh, other things like this. So basically... Who are the Sunnis? The Sunnis are the ones that pretty much uh, ascribe to what I share with you, the five pillars. You know, they believe in one God, uh, name Allah, Muhammad, his prophet, uh, praying five times a day, fasting, uh, uh, giving uh, alms or, or, or tithing, basically, and performing pilgrimage, praying towards Mecca, visiting Mecca. That's what they believe in. And they do not believe, for instance, that you can pray to Muhammad or pray to the saints. Now, Shia, on the other hand, add certain things like this. They believe that you can pray to their own saints and the saints will intercede on your behalf. So that's one major difference. They believe you can go and perform a pilgrimage at a shrine of one of those saints. You don't need to go to Mecca. You can go just to a shrine and perform a pilgrimage and still earn good deeds for doing so. Sunni consider Shias to be basically infidels for doing something like this. And Shia will claim that the Sunnis corrupted Islam, and therefore both of them end up fighting and killing each other because they still believe that each one of them think the other is not a Muslim. That's one of the reasons why. Now, when we talk about Wahhabi and Salafi, now we begin to talk about more rigid forms of Sunni Islam. If you have a scale of 0 to 10, and the Sunnis are anywhere from 5 to maybe 8 or 9 on that scale in terms of how rigid they are, Salafis and Wahhabis are 25-30 on that scale. They're that kind of rigid, basically. There is no room for gray areas, either black or white. Al, is the, is the modesty for Muslim women going away, or is that just regional? 
depending on what they wear and how they keep a modest look. But more and more women are starting to reveal themselves. Is that optional for them? Or yeah, no, modesty is mandated by the Quran, and it's not an optional for a woman. In fact, many of them, unfortunately, get insulted and attacked if they are caught not wearing the hijab, even abroad. I mean, if a Muslim man uh, knows that this woman talking to him is a Muslim, he will rebuke her for not dressing up nicely. Mm. Uh, they give themselves the right to do so. Uh, how they wear the hijab can vary from city to city, from culture to culture, from town to town. But as, as long as they cover their hands, they cover at least their hair, uh, they wear a long dress, that, that's the basic, you know. Some of them go, go to the extreme of covering the faith, right. uh, wearing uh, also uh, gloves and so on and so forth. Hmm. I see uh, a hand in here, actually. Uh, this young lady has been asked, I want to ask for, yes. Yeah, we'll go right here and then right here yeah. down in front. I wanted to ask about uh, the bright angels or the angels of light uh, that supposedly gave Mormonism their uh, revelation and, uh, and also for the uh, Muslims. Uh, and since Lucifer was the angel of light, do you, I'd like you to comment on if there's any connection here that it's really uh, Satan behind all these uh, angels delivering these messages. Well, I mean, certainly, as I mentioned in, uh, on Sunday, that in uh, Hebrews 1.1, it is finished. God is spoke already to us in the Son. Uh, there are no prophets that are expected. Therefore, it makes no sense for God to send an angel, a real heavenly angel, to try to uh, promote, uh, basically, a new message. So I am convinced, of course, it's whether Satan or any of his servants are the ones who have appeared uh, to both Muhammad and Joseph Smith. Certainly, Satan... Uh, is the winner out of all this. Uh, he has misled so far 101.5 billion Muslims, for instance, in the world, and he will continue to come up with different forms of religions to try to mislead people. Now, I, am, I have to tell you this. I am convinced Muhammad did see something and truly believed that he was serving someone. But it's sad because if he would have heard the true gospel message and saw the real uh, Christian uh, church around him, maybe he would have questioned that. But the fact that he never heard that, that makes me believe that Muhammad didn't know anything about that. And Satan, of course, capitalized on this. Um, where do we have questions? Uh, yeah. Please, the young lady has been uh, waiting me, for a long time. Let me just interject right here. It's 8 okay. o'clock, and I know um, child care is getting out, and so I want to be respectful of that. So what I'm going to do is we'll do the same thing as we did last week. I'm going to pray, and don't feel bad if you need to go up and get your kids. That's more than uh, wonderful. And we'll do this for about another 15, 20 minutes, if that's okay. And then we'll call it a night. Father, thanks for tonight. Thank you for Al and his testimony and his knowledge. And Father, we're learning quite a bit tonight. And I pray, God, it wouldn't be knowledge for knowledge's sake, uh, but it would be used by you for your glory that we would be able to uh, just shed light to our Muslim coworkers, neighbors, friends um, on the person of Jesus Christ. And God, what a glorious thing it is to hear testimony after testimony of people coming to know you as their Lord and Savior. And God, so may this information be used for your glory. We will give you the praise always in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you give Al a hand, please? And then we'll stick around here for Thank just you. a few more moments. Uh, we had a question right down here, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Can you, uh, in, in a lot of my, the college classes that I teach, I have a lot of uh, students who are, uh, who are Muslim. And a lot of the times I think that while they're there certainly to take English, 
I feel like they're there to certainly spread their religion. Can you, is, does Islam have an organized, quote-unquote, missionary movement? And, and, and what does that look like? Because I mean, you know, obviously when you think of the Mormonism, you see that. It's, it's evident. And in, in the Christian, you know, we have missionaries local and, and worldwide. Is, is there a missionary movement in Islam? And, and if so, what, what is that? Uh, there is no such thing as an organized missionary movement that has one form only. Uh, Islam in, in, in its history, the last 14 centuries, spread its faith in a variety of ways. Some of it through um, uh, war and invasions and forcing the religion on the people uh, of that particular area. Uh, other ways, it would have been through trade caravans and just uh, uh, making friendships and things like that and capitalizing on lack of knowledge uh, by people, of course. And uh, now, because of the use of media and how the media has been very effective in exposing Islam, there has been efforts here in the West, at least, to evangelize, uh, using Islamic evangelism, if you wish, an organized way, to try to counter back uh, the uh, Christian apologist, uh, apologetic approach by creating their own, also, uh, approach and using YouTube uh, inviting people to the mosques, you know, having interfaith dialogues and things like that. So usually it is done in those variety of ways. And of course, students usually are encouraged when they come here to try to share the faith and encourage others to go to the mosque and be able to be, uh, you know, introduced to the Western form of Islam, which is not really the complete form, basically. Yes, ma'am. What, what is the significance of Jerusalem and Islam? It's, uh, that's a very good question, by the way. Jerusalem is a city that was mentioned at least almost a thousand times in the Bible. Almost, you know, give or take. It's the city that is dear and near to God's heart. A lot of things happened in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem and uh, uh, basically uh, re dealing with Jerusalem and leading later to Jerusalem. We always read about that, especially in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is definitely filled with that name for a number of things. In fact, one of the downfalls of the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom, after the Assyrians around 721 A.D. basically came and wiped out and took to exile the northern kingdom, okay, uh, which is Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah or Judea basically, the downfall of that, that they truly believed God is going to protect him because of Jerusalem, they thought God will never allow anyone to come in and take them out of Jerusalem. And yet, of course, we know the rest is history. In 586, at least the third wave of exile came in and Nebuchadnezzar basically destroyed Jerusalem. And Daniel was one of those people that were taken at that time. So Jerusalem is so significant in the Bible. Yet in the Quran, we read nothing about Jerusalem, not a mm. single word. But the only thing we know is that Muslims are hung up on the idea that Jerusalem belongs to them because there is a mosque built there that they believe that Muhammad, when he went to heaven, he stopped there and he prayed at the Dome of the Rock and therefore now building the mosque means that this is their territory and it belongs to them. Thank you for the question. Yep, we'll go here and then right over here. I actually have two questions. One is, how do Muslims see Jesus Christ? What do they see him as? I mean, we see him as our Lord and Savior, but how do they see him? Muslims see Jesus as a prophet who came before Muhammad 
and he served for a number of years. Uh, he was supposedly a Muslim prophet who was sharing pieces of Islam with his own people. Then he was rejected, and the uh, Romans wanted to kill him, so God came and rescued him and ascended him to heaven until a later time. When he comes back, his second coming is the sign of end times, but he was going to come back to continue uh, the work of Muhammad and invite people to accept Islam. He will establish the final Islamic empire. He is going to fight the Christians and the Jews, destroy the cross, and serve for 40 years, get married, have children, die, and ascend to heaven later uh, after that, and will be judged. That's basically who is Jesus uh, of Islam. He's, okay. he's mentioned several times in the Quran. He is mentioned um, at least over 90 sometimes More in the Quran. More times than Muhammad. Is More times right? than Muhammad. That is very true. And then the other question is, we get a lot of misconceptions about Muslims via the news and just stuff like that. You hear a lot about jihad. How is that actually in the Quran? What do they really mean by it? Mm. Jihad is the number one issue that splits not only just us and Islam, but splits Muslims too. There's a lot of moderate Muslims that they believe jihad is something that is being misinterpreted by the jihadists and the radicals. And they think that they're the jihadist form of interpretation of the Quran is wrong. They take some verses literally, and they assume that it applies for today. And any verses found in the Quran, which there are verses that ask people to go and fight and spread Islam, they say those were just eventual verses that applied back then. Yet I can tell you this, that jihadists are the true followers of Islam, and mm. they are correct in their interpretation. Islam teaches that in order for Islam to be supreme, that someone has to spread that faith and fight for it until there is no God but Allah and no religion but the religion of Islam. Explain what a jihad is then. A jihad, you're going to hear all the time that means struggle, and many times they're going to say it's only a spiritual struggle. Well, that's true. Jihad is used for that, but the actual jihad, if you study it in the Quran itself, in fact, I have a book, by the way, outside that have a chart showing you how many times in the Quran the word jihad and a command to fight was mentioned. And you're going to see in the Quran, at least in the Medinan Quran, over one-third of the Quran promotes that. But you study the history of Muhammad, almost, almost two-thirds of his life was invested for jihad, mm. basically. It's the physical jihad, the fighting, the killing the subduing people and bringing him to submission to Islam. Hmm. Right over here. Hi. Hi. Is it true that the Quran says to fight and slay pagans or Christians? Yes. So, Chapter 9 of the Quran teaches that. So if that's so and they believe that Jesus was a prophet, then a prophet is good, then why would they slay people who believe in Jesus Christ? Is it because they believe... Because we believe Jesus Christ, of course, is our Savior, and, and it goes against what they believe? Because they tell you Jesus uh, didn't declare himself to be a Savior. He didn't declare himself to be God in the flesh. He never declared himself to be the Son of God. It was Paul and New Testament writers and others who twisted that truth, and therefore Muhammad came to correct that. In fact, in the Quran, they have verses from Jesus himself stating that he never declared himself to be that way. So that's why they think we're not worshiping the true teaching of Christ. We are just worshiping a twisted version of Christianity. So then how do we address Muslims then here in America who, um, I mean, that's, that's bad. You know, if, if that's their goal and that's, if that's what the Quran says, 
we're Christians, we shouldn't fear that. But the truth is, is that's what they believe to do. Then how do we address that? We have to correct their view. Uh, like I said, one of the things that opened my eyes is I realized that people are not born Christians. To be a believer in Christ, that means you have to make a confession to follow Christ. That's something that I never heard before. Uh, we need to show them what the Bible teaches about Christ and the teaching of Christ himself. But, of course, we have to also work with them to believe that the Bible is the Word of God because oftentimes they claim it's corrupted. So we got our work cut out for us. We have to start somewhere, and we have to try to work with them to understand that the Bible is the Word of God. And if it is the Word of God, then let's look at what the Word of God is teaching and Christ's own sayings about who he was. And only then, you know, hopefully God will open their hearts and their minds to be able to accept that. But if they refuse, then they're still hung up and and uh, confined to their own belief system, which is, like you said, is very difficult to basically approach and um, uh, go inside. Right here in the middle. Okay. Um, I worked with a Muslim, and he told me that uh, he couldn't eat pork and he couldn't drink alcohol. Um, where does that fall under? Is that it's not a pillar? Is that a rule, a law? Now, what was the first thing he Couldn't told eat you? Pork. It, yeah, okay. So, uh, definitely, Islam prohibits the eating of pork and considered drinking alcohol to be a sin. So, the Quran teaches that. It's not a pillar, but it's one of those commandments that they're required to do. Okay. And one last question. Personally, now that you're a believer, do you eat pork? That was the first meal I had. <laughs> 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 pork chops. Pork chops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why don't we? Uh, we got one more question down here, uh, young man down here, and then we'll we'll wrap it up tonight. Um, as Mike's getting down there, again the Quran dilemma. Uh, obviously, um, uh, it's worth reading um, because what you're hearing tonight verbally is in here uh, literally, and so uh, I'd pick it up. Copies out in the lobby. Um, and then before everyone takes off, um, Pastor, Stone, Pastor Tom handed me this note. Um, there's been an extremely large earthquake uh, in the Solomon Islands, uh, and I have to plead ignorance here as to where that is, but 8.0 uh, on the Richter scale. Um, and so um, we'll take one more question, then we'll, we'll pray for, for this situation. Okay, so I was just curious. Um what exactly happened to Muhammad's wife and kids? Like, did they believe him, or did they think he was crazy, or what no. happened to them? Good question. Actually, none of uh, Muhammad's wives ever uh, went against him. Uh, in fact, his first wife, Khadija, uh, is the one that encouraged him to declare himself to be a prophet. And uh, I'm glad you asked this question. We wrote about it, and the story went as Muhammad, after he was in the cave, and the angel of light appeared to him, Muhammad was terrified. Why? Why would Muhammad be terrified? Every prophet in the Bible, when they have an encounter with an angelic being, they have an assurance, do not be afraid. Yeah, Muhammad was terrified. Went home, he thought he was demonically possessed. By the way, in those days, to be demonically possessed, it's really bringing shame to your tribe and your family because it was very common that people could be possessed by demon spirits. So his wife told him, I don't think you are demonic possessed. You're a good man. However, if the same being appears to you, please let me know. And I'll close with this story. And when that being appeared to him one time when she was basically with him, he said, I see him. She said, okay, put your head on my left thigh. 
He lied down and did that. She said, do you see him? He said, yes. She said, turn around and lie on my left thigh. Do you still see him? Uh, right thigh. He said, yes. She said, okay, sit in my lap. Do you still see him? He said, yes. She said, okay, I'm going to do one more thing. She lifted her dress and she said, do you see him? He said, no. She said, praise God, this is an angel because angels do not like to see women naked. Therefore, you are a prophet of God. That was it. It was a very simple test, by the way. Uh, you men should try it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, let me close with, with this, guys. A lot of us, we, we step out in faith every now and then. We, we, we risk little, if we're being honest with ourselves. As Christians in, in our culture today, um, we don't have to risk much. And yet, Al, you've, you've risked everything. Um, you've had, as you mentioned on Sunday, your family disown you and writing this book and having threats against you. You're risking everything even just to be here tonight. And so we are honored to have you here. Thank you um, so much. We're, we're continually praying for you and the ministry Please that do. it would go forward. And that God really would make some inroads in this uh, massive religion that is really making inroads here into America by the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to definitely continue to pray for you. Al will be at the uh, table out there, I thank believe, you. signing uh, signing books. And so let's thank pray. You. God, thank you so much for tonight. And Father, we thank you that um, the work is still yet to be done. Father, for any of us in here tonight that think that uh, we've arrived or there's nothing to do, uh, God, I hope tonight was an inspiration and motivation, maybe a conviction, that there are millions upon millions of people that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe they're living right next to us. Maybe they're working with us. Maybe they're going to school with us. And Father, for someone to claim the name of Allah or uh, the Prophet Muhammad, for someone to claim the Quran as the authoritative word of Allah, uh, Father, we need to uh, love on them and uh, share the great news of Jesus Christ, that their sins can be forgiven and that they need not live by a life of works, but Father, they can have a right relationship with their Heavenly Father. And so God, inspire us, motivate us. May we uh, read Al's book and other material that will help inspire us as well. But more importantly, Father, may we just read the word of God and be inspired by what happened to us on the cross and that our sins were taken away. And may we live in that freedom uh, even as we leave tonight. Father, we lift up these people that are experiencing tragedy all around them in the Solomon Islands. Father, we lift up their families to you, loved ones that may not be with them right now. We pray, Father, that uh, we would do what you place on our hearts to Uh, give aid, and and at the very least, just continue to pray for this situation. We'll give you the praise and glory this week, Father, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming tonight, folks. Um, We'll see you next week. Catholicism next week.